welcome back to the Book on Fire podcast. Uh, we It's about dusk right now on the side of the mountain. You will hear in the background the loud calls of the chorus frogs that are called spring peepers in this region. Uh, their Latin names are is Pseudacris crucifer, which is a pretty epic and amazing Latin binomial. They are called chorus frogs because they sing together. And these are little tree frogs, no bigger than, they're not even two inches long, maybe a little bit, maybe almost two inches long. I hope you can hear them. Um, I hope you can hear them. If you can't, then that's too bad, but they're really loud in my background here. (laughs) Um, Also, we're at pretty much peak trillium time here. The forest around us is so full of wildflowers. This is the time of the spring ephemerals uh, when a lot of wildflowers come out to bloom, taking advantage of the light before the canopy of the trees fills in which will happen soon. It's getting ready to get a lot darker here in the woods. And it's high spring, really. (laughs) Ready to do this. Yeah. Ready to do this after reading this, the last chapter. Yeah, it's so exciting. Staying with the Trouble, this book has been such an uh, interesting and long journey, and we've covered a lot of territory. And now we arrive at this, which is brings in a lot of the threads, Mm -hmm, right, that that, that the previous chapters um, have had before. So this is the last chapter of Staying with the Trouble. It's called The Camille Stories, Children of Compost. And the context for this is that uh, Donna Haraway is bringing us some fantasy ideas that came, that emerged from a sort of uh, creative writing workshop that most of us might not be able to imagine being at. Um, I don't know. It's like an all-star cast where you're like, oh, my breakout group happens to be these other famous theorist people. Yeah, there's a funny thing <laughs> with Haraway where, like, you know, she's she reads all kinds of books. She's got her hands in science, technology, feminism, philosophy. Science. Evolutionary biology. Yeah. Ecology. But at the same time, her her world seems kind of small. Or at least she Where... <laughs> hangs out a lot with certain people. Yeah. Because yeah. basically, she was like, oh, I was invited to this writing workshop by that was being carried on by Isabel Stengers, mm-hmm. who is like one of the stars of the book, kind of. Well, not a star, but someone who, a famous influence. who comes up yeah. very often in the book. And in my breakout group, uh, where we were assigned, you know, to work on a collaborative writing project, my partners were... Vincian Despray, right. who was the subject of the last chapter right. that we just talked about in the last episode, and Fabrizio Terranova, who is the filmmaker who made a movie about Donna Haraway right. that's now like uh, traveling around and getting screened at film festivals and right. all this stuff. So anyway, both of those names were already known to me, and... And by the way, if anyone has access to this movie called um, Storytelling for Earthly Survival, I think it's called, that's a documentary about Haraway, we would love to see it. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. But yeah, so she's like at a writing workshop and these are her partners in her breakout group. So she and uh, her breakout group of geniuses get to work on this assignment and this assignment informs this chapter. And the assignment that Isabel Stingers gives everyone 
I'd love to know who were the other all-star groups in the room, but maybe they just happened to get at the stars. I don't know. Yeah. The assignment was to bring a child into the world of story and to see that child through five generations after. And this is uh, was to be an exercise of speculative fiction seemingly addressing the world starting with the world that we live in now maybe like having a um Mm -hmm. given the current not like something happening on a different planetary system but a terran earthbound story yeah of speculative fiction in the future of this planet yeah i think seems like that was the assignment yeah yeah i don't think you were supposed to come up with some kind of dune type story or something you know right um where you like give a bunch of info dump at the beginning to place you in place and time you know Right. Um, so that was the assignment. And then the three of them come up with this character named Camille. And Haraway brings to us in Staying with the Trouble a sort of synopsis of the Camille stories from that emerged in this writing process. So in the Camille stories, the child that is birthed and that emerges out of this process is a person named Camille, which is a feminine pronoun, I mean, a feminine name, but is actually not a specific gender. Um, so, and when I'm referring to Camille, I'm going to use the pronouns that Haraway uses, which Haraway likes the word per, P-E-R, to refer to Camille and to use as a gender neutral pronoun. And that's a pronoun that came up, was invented by Marge Piercy uh, back in Woman at the Edge of Time, I think. But anyway, we're going to try and stick to the pronoun. That is the pronoun of Camille, which is per. Uh, but Camille is a child born into a sort of con- a sort of intentional community or town, a planned town that has emerged in either the present or not too distant future in a sort of ruined landscape in West Virginia and Appalachia that is post-mountaintop removal, uh, coal extraction, mm-hmm. ruination. And so... The these... first Camille was born in 2025. Okay, great. So that's that dates us to like when it means in the near future. Yeah. So her specific community is in a group of communities, but they're called communities of compost because Haraway's obsessed with compost. Uh, yeah. Can we talk about that for a minute? Sure. So, well, maybe we can back up and say that, yes, the assignment is to write five generations, and it's like five generations of a single character? Or wait, no. Starting with a character and following that character into five generations, somehow connected to them. Following that character into five generations. Because no one's going to live that long. Right. And Except they could, I guess. But So Haraway <laughs> says... This is my rendering of Camille for five generations mm-hmm. and Camille's community and all of this stuff. And we'll get into all of that. And as you will see, this story is like a sci-fi speculative fabulation taking a lot of the ideas from the book and projecting them into a kind of sci-fi speculative story sure. about how these ideas could actually unfold in the world in an intentional way. Which is exciting because um, we keep having that problem with... Yeah, but yeah, because do? one of the <laughs> ongoing questions in the book that we've talked about here and you might be thinking about is just like, okay, but yeah, how how can we make this real? Like, how mm-hmm. how could this look entering the world and if it was developed more, 
in the world, you know, and in the Sumpoisa chapter, she, you know, she tells these stories about the video game, about the churro sheep, all the stuff that are examples of how things could, are existing in the world, but this is a chance to, like, take that into the sci-fi realm, to actually imagine an intensification of it, mm-hmm. and it's exciting, it's exciting in that way. Um, but back and to the compost. <laughs> so the compost, okay, so now... Now we can get to the compost thing. And this is something that I've been thinking about from the very beginning of the book is like, what are the resonances that compost has for Donna Haraway? Like, what does compost mean for her? Because like to a gardener, compost is a way to turn organic waste or just organic material, Mm -hmm. but it's often something that doesn't have a better purpose Mm -hmm. into a fertile, very living kind of soil component that introduces a lot of microorganisms and fungi and stuff into, you know, your potting mix or into your garden or, you know, all these things. And for her, I get the sense that like the word, that the idea of compost for her has a sense of recomposition, Mm. like maybe even more than decomposition, because... I seem to get a sense from it that there's a sense of like, yeah, recombining, mm-hmm. taking things and combining them in new ways or something. Well, or it that, definitely seems true for these communities or that, she's talking or about. Or that maybe the compost is the place where, is the place that is productive of biological diversity mm-hmm. in complex patterning right. that produces a certain end. The um, like... And- complexity of the living system that is yeah, compo- healthy compost has yeah yeah um if there's like good aerobic yeah activity. let's let's stick to healthy compost yeah <laughs> <laughs> easier said than done easier um, said than done. um so anyway i don't know if all that is worth going into but but i don't but i sometimes wonder i'm like is this compost my compost But it is kind of important to talk about compost a little bit, though, because one of the really significant things about these communities or aspects of their life they're creating together is how children are born or the process by which people decide to procreate and what is done to those children. And the children are called children of compost because Mm -hmm. they are a sort of reconfiguration and recombining because the more, one of the more sci-fi elements of these communities of compost is that certain children that are born and there seems to be some strict regulation around childbirth. Um, there are definitely, you're definitely encouraged to not to have at least three parenting figures for each child and are rewarded for the, for that decision. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the communities of compost, the children that are, certain children are raised as symbionts with certain species of animals that are threatened. And the symbiont children are not only raised to learn about the life ways of these other species and care for them and steward them and do what it takes to protect them, but they are also genetically modified at Maybe in gestation or at birth. 
I don't remember that part um, specifically. So early on, either in infancy or in gestation, to have characteristics of that species that is their symbiont. Nothing is done to the anim- the other animal species, um, but just to the human children who are born to be symbionts. And the purpose of this uh, trippy genetic modification is to instill from birth a caring for and partnership with a species that needs special consideration and protection. And to it also gives the child an organization for their life. And each child who is raised in that first generation of symbionts will support a lineage, not necessarily by blood, but a lineage of offspring or descendants that will carry on that role of symbiosis with the animal. And Camille's symbiont is the monarch butterfly. And so at the beginning, at least, they choose symbiont animals often who are migratory. And that is specifically to ensure that these communities of compost are not isolated and insular. And so they have networks with other communities because of those migratory routes of the symbiont children, but also to make sure that they are remembering the global impact of or the necessity to think about where these migratory animals go when they're not around you and your community. Um, this kind of relates to what we were talking about around birds uh, in a few a few episodes ago and how to love birds right now, one has to deal with the grief and awareness of the fragility of their environments in more than one location because they're migratory. Yeah. It might be worth stating here that the communities of compost come into being in order to heal. Right. And to heal places. Mm-hmm. And to heal relationships. Right. And in fact, if I can, maybe I'll just read th- this first paragraph. It's actually one sentence introducing the beginning of the communities mm-hmm. of compost. And it says, luckily, Camille came into being at a moment of unexpected but powerful interlaced planet-wide eruption of numerous communities of a few hundred people each who felt moved to migrate to ruined places and work with human and non-human partners to heal these places, building networks, pathways, nodes, and webs of and for a newly habitable world. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I just feel like that's a good that intro. That is important. So, you know, the the story starts around, around now. You know, Camille won born in 2025, but the community was going already. They were born, Per was born into this community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically the story starts now. Mm-hmm. And and it starts with people feeling moved to migrate to ruined places to start these communities. Yeah, and so the goal of these communities is healing in a damaged world. Mm-hmm. And the emphasis on partnering children with migratory animals has to do with the interconnectedness of all places and mm-hmm. life. And in the case of Camille, who's partnered with monarchs, specifically monarchs, on these two migrational pathways, because one of the things that we learned in this book, which some of you maybe know already, is that the monarch globally lives a lot of different places and is not endangered. It's specifically the monarchs who cross Turtle Island on these two pathways that are endangered. That mm-hmm. that lifeway of those monarchs. And part of the point of the symbiont program in the communities of compost is to attach 
children who will become adults to specific animals living specific lives mm-hmm. in place and time. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just, you know, it would be someone where you live, you know, like the other, some of the other symbionts that are not migratory are really specific endemic crawdads and salamanders in that part of West Virginia. Right, because the story the story references other children in the community who were made symbionts with other species, mm-hmm. and yeah, they're all endemic or threatened in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of eel and yeah, oh, an salamander eel, right. and kestrel, mm-hmm. and yeah, but some of the other children. But but Camille's partnered with monarch butterflies, and Purr is. Uh, actually goes through some of the metamorphoses in a That's way that, that monarch butterflies do, having different coloration at different times of their life in somewhat similar to the way that the monarch would go through changes. Um, yeah, Camille's like a, has black and yellow and white, uh, striped skin. Yeah. For when would be the caterpillar phase in their life. And then. Yeah. Um, becomes kind of green and shiny during the chrysalis phase when Purr is hit, is approaching adolescent rite of passage time, initiatory into adulthood, and then has actual like monarch butterfly markings later in life. Yeah. On their skin. And at a certain point in their life, also like chooses to have like the special antenna implants on Purr's chin mm. to, um. That was one of the, com- that was an, a different Camille. A, a subsequent Camille. Yeah. Yeah. But right. To be able to taste like a butterfly, monarch butterfly taste and smells, I guess, at the same time. Yeah. But that's part of it also from the very beginning is uh-huh. that, is that the genetic, the gene splicing or whatever's going on, it's not just like, so you look like a thing, but also Purr is able to like smell and taste similarly more similarly to a monarch butterfly than a normal human uh and this is part of part of what haraway goes into here is how the symbionts are they are they just get closer to the experience Mm -hmm. of their symbiotic partner right and that helps them you know, care for and become invested in the life way of this critter. Right. So being able to somewhat sense the smells and the pheromones on the breezes that the monarchs would, being very in tune with the flowering cycles and the seasonal cycles the way that the monarchs would, um, is what part of, is, is part of the partnership that's going on there. Yeah. I mean, they also so, even, uh, prepare Camille or, sort of prophylactically give per the ability to ingest the toxic parts of milkweed right and which is yeah that's right extra that's right per is like resistant to milkweed toxin right or you know can metabolize milkweed toxin right that's part of so that's one of the weird ways that they right so in this part of the story is haraway and and her collaborators are really going into like the science fiction aspect of speculative fiction and and creating these hi- hybrid creatures or like you know partially hybridized creatures mm-hmm. um humans but that are symbiotically connected to these other critters and partially you know and carry some of their genes and express some mm-hmm. of their and um and there's more 
storytelling about that too that we'll get to as far mm-hmm. as like what's that like for them because Haraway speculates about their subjectivity a little bit and the sim the children who are symbionts are intimately connected and kind of symbolic of one of the major goals and functions of the of the children of compost the yeah. communities of compost and that's this striving towards multi-species flourishing mm-hmm. in the ways that we've been talking about in the book by being like meaningfully and intimately connected with other than human critters mm-hmm. and being bonded with the more than human world in new ways, ways that really matter, mm-hmm. ways where there's stuff at stake. And in this way, helping to move humanity into what Haraway calls recuperation, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like getting well from the sickness of the mm-hmm. Anthropocene, right. like basically. Um, and then, but the communities of compost have, so that's one major thing. And their other major project seems to be, you can kind of distill out two major projects. One of them is that, and another related but somewhat separate project is population control. Right. <laughs> right? Is population reduction. Extreme population yeah and you know so here we we come back to the make kin not babies slogan in fact haraway says somewhere in this chapter that it was camille who taught her the slogan make kin not babies so it makes me wonder if maybe this writing workshop happened before some of of that other stuff got written or something Mm -hmm. um but anyway, maybe she she means that in a different way than than that. But yeah, the so you know, Haraway's somewhat controversial population reduction imperative is coming into play here in the in the Camille stories of the Children of Compost, um, and and it shows up in this specific way where I think that Janet already talked about this a little bit, where they try and introduce this new kinship, this new kinship structure where not only are some of the people symbionts with animals, but the communities in general, you get a feeling, are trying to develop expanded notions of kinship, including mm-hmm. kinship with non-human and all of this stuff. It's not just the symbionts. The symbionts are just the kind of the vanguard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in addition to that, they want to make new births rare. Mm-hmm. And precious. And precious. Yeah, mm-hmm. precious is the word. And that every intentional new birth that is, you kind of get the feeling that they're like almost designed by the community, Mm -hmm. all these births, that they're coming out of almost like community planning or community process. These precious ones that are born have three parents, right, each, and lots of other community members and kin who help raise them as well, but three people who you would call parents. And... Are they, are all of those children symbionts? made symbionts or just some of them? I don't think they all are. Okay. Maybe so I'm wrong. Some but... of those precious ones are selected to become symbionts. Mm-hmm. So population reduction is a big thing. Mm-hmm. And as the, as the story progresses, because Haraway you know, she sets up all of this and this town of New Gali in West Virginia and Camille, who's partnered with the monarch butterfly and what the communities of compost are all about. And then she actually does some like biographical storytelling 
of like the first Camille, the second mm-hmm. Camille, the third Camille, the fourth, all the way to the fifth Camille, each of which is symbiotically partnered with monarch butterflies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not, one's not the child of the other. But it's not. But they are trained. But yeah, but they're each initiated by the one that came before. Right. So they're not biologically descendant. But they're um, in lineage. Yeah, but they're in a lineage of this partnership. And it's an um, interesting, like, individual lineage. Like, there's mm-hmm. not, there's never more than one of you except for during the, like, last decade of someone's life. Right, yeah, it's not like multiple children are partnered mm-hmm. with monarchs, it doesn't seem like. One of the things that Haraway does as she presents the story of each of the Camilles is at the beginning of each section, it's the years, the born and death year of each Camille, and then what the global human population is at the time of Per's birth and the time of Per's death. Mm-hmm. And so we get this, it's like part of what's being tracked throughout the entire chapter of this storytelling is the fluctuation in human populations. And it's going, it's mostly going down. Mm-hmm. It briefly goes up at the beginning. Um but but then it turns around and starts going down as the generations go on. It's five generations. And so by the time that uh, the chapter ends, um, Camille five dies in 2425. Mm-hmm. So it's like quite the a The Camilles day. live a, a couple very of, long time. A couple of the Camilles <laughs> live a hundred years. Um, Things are pretty good. Yeah. So... Um, I actually hadn't thought about this until just now, but... One of the things the monarchs and Camille have in common, besides the genetic, the genes that they share, um, is that one of the iconic and memorable, memorable characteristics of monarchs is that they don't make the whole journey of migration by themselves. Like, no individual makes the whole journey. Right. They lay eggs and die, and then the caterpillars become butterflies, and then they move some more hundreds of miles and many generations make the, the migration back and forth uh-huh. um, from beginning to end and back. And so they're a really good symbol for what she's talking about, which is this long-term transition yeah. through many generations yeah, where no true. one individual Camille is going to see anything through to its end. Yeah. They're just going to do their part of the journey. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. That's That's... That's really interesting and cool. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it is. They reflect each other in that way. But anyway, I I wanted to identify those two major goals Mm -hmm. of the communities of compost. This, like, reweaving human life into non-human life in important ways, in, like, caring ways for flourishing, and then also population reduction. And one of the things that gets some treatment in here, because... Haraway's always, she always embroiders her calls for not making babies and reducing the population with a concern to like not employ coercive practices to be doing this in anti-racist, decolonial, pro-queer, feminist ways. Like, you know, she's always emphasizing that we have to do this, but we have to do it in all of these good ways, you know, not those bad ways. And so people are never coerced not to have a baby. People are not coerced not to have a baby is the letter of the law, but she definitely sets up this feeling of these communities where there is just a much higher status 
-hmm. It feels like being put on the babies that are born in this like really intentionally community oriented three parent precious way. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And it is all because it says, and I'll just read this, all new human members of the group who are born in the context of community decision making come into being as symbionts oh. with critters of actively threatened species mm -hmm. and therefore with the whole pattern fabric of living and dying of those particular beings and all their associates for whom the possibility of a future is very fragile. And then there's this really interesting part, which is right after human babies born through individual reproductive choice, which is the other option, do not become biological symbionts, but they do live in many other kinds of sympoiesis with human and non-human critters. Over the generations, the communities of compost experienced complex difficulties with hierarchical caste formations and sometimes violent clashes between children born as symbionts and those born as more conventional human individuals. So in this part, we definitely like see this like terrifying image. Mm -hmm. you know, of like a kind of a hierarchy and a caste system that is uh, a reflection of the potential mm -hmm. of the kind of thing that Haraway is envisioning here, where you really try and uplift and give higher status to a certain form of reproduction over another, mm -hmm. you know? And, I mean, I have to give Haraway props for, like, not not just writing a pure utopia here, mm -hmm. where it's like, and everything was great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know she definitely is like and everything was not always great right you know and a lot and this way of doing things introduced a lot of problems you it know? reminds me a lot of octavia butler's work in general where the recurring themes in her entire body of work in life were hierarchy tendencies in humans to isolate and punish difference mm -hmm. and and just to create hierarchical structures mm -hmm. and that that had to be something you were always working against in all of the cultures in her books that have humans in them. Yeah. And it seems like Donna Haraway is saying, like, if this difference is here, there will be hierarchy and we have to watch out for that. Yeah. You know, and also I just not, wanna... and it's not just the difference itself tends to sort into hierarchy, but they're actively prioritizing one, mm -hmm. you know, the community is giving one a higher status than well, the other. It's built she in. does talk about how the early symbionts are bullied by the other children and have a uh, hard time. Yeah, that's so also it, true. It, that yeah. happens at first, and then it, yeah. it develops into a hierarchical preferential Right. They have Yeah, the early symbionts have this, like, complicated mix of feeling special and, like, they're the special ones, but also sometimes being right. bullied, uh -huh. you know, which is, yeah, she completely brings up understandable. A lot of sci-fi and fantasy references in here, and I think it's really strange that she doesn't bring up Octavia Butler's series that's called, or I think it's three books that are called Lilith's Brood, which is all about symbiosis, but symbiosis with uh, not Terran or Earth forms, but with uh, alien life forms and humans that become mm -hmm. symbionts together. And if you haven't read those books, you really should. It makes you think about stuff a lot, <laughs> a lot about power and hierarchy and also what is autonomy and individuality. Um, but I see a lot of that in here, and it's interesting that Airway doesn't bring it up, but I'm wondering if it actually could have been off her radar. I'm not sure.
Okay, so before we get into more of the details about these communities of compost and some of our thoughts and some about them and some of the issues that came up for us reading the Camille stories, um, sure, I'd just like to go over kind of the arc of the Camilles, the five generation of Camilles, so that we can have an idea of what happens and then start talking about the defining characteristics of these communities. So, as we already mentioned, the first Camille... Is born in 2025. That's right, yeah. And Purr is living more in a world where there, I think there's like 10 billion people at the beginning of their life. And Camille. 8 billion at birth. Oh, uh, okay. 10 billion at 2100 when they die. So the population is still sort of growing up at this point. That's a lot of people. That's, uh, Starts with one more billion people than live on the Earth right now. Ends with three more billion, right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of people still. And it seems like these communities of compost are rising up in areas where there is ecological damage, where there's sort of a wasteland, and they are creating communities to both heal the pla- this land they live on and to create healing environments for themselves. Um, And there are still a lot of people moving around. It seems to be a time of resource scarcity and increasing chaos in the, much in the way that we are living in today, but exponentially more because of the number of people and because of the, I'm assuming there's going to be some climate chaos increasing at that point. So it's a time of refugees without refuge. Right. I think so, there's a quote from in there. Yeah. A lot of folks who the um, Haraway calls in-migrants, she talks about in-migrants and out-migrants instead of immigrants. But in-migrants mm. are people who are often at this point in the story, the first Camille's life, fleeing famine, genocide, war, and scarcity. They're migrating into communities right. of compost. Yes. Yes. In-migrants, yeah. And... Out migrants would be leaving for reasons of just not being into the way thing people do things, maybe or um, trying conflict or conflict. something. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of climate that exists at this point. Camille, one who is symbiont with or symbiotic with monarchs, is observing monarchs and working for them, uh, doing a lot of work around agriculture, and it seems like they're still. Fossil fuel companies at this point, and Per is doing a lot of activism there in West Virginia to try and support the monarchs. Um, Camille number two, who I guess is going to be uh, living, does min- study with Camille one for at least a decade, but who is born in 2085. 2085, goes a little bit further and starts to follow the monarchs on their migratory path. And Per actually goes down to Mexico where they overwinter. And who are the people? And goes to California. Oh, California too. Yeah, Per goes around meeting different folks who are on the migratory pathways. And then, yeah, very importantly, goes to Mexico and meets with uh, the Masawa people who 
live in central Mexico and have a very special and specific relationship with the monarchs. Yeah, so I didn't know this until I read this book, but they the monarchs come back at the time of Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And in their life way and mythos, those are their ancestors returning to see them during the time of Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. The monarchs are their ancestors. It's the dead coming back, yeah. And, and they, they just cover these trees in the forest These there. fir trees, yeah. The monarchs, yeah, if you've ever... I've heard tell of this. Apparently it'll just be this whole groves of... Mm-hmm. These groves of conifers that are just like shimmering with the monarchs. They're yeah. so covered with them. I would love to see that someday. Yeah. So that's a really beautiful... And Camille too actually gets kind of initiated. Oh, she, they are initiated into that they're, tradition. Yeah. They're like initiated by the Masawa people into this deep relationship with monarch, with the monarchs in a new way, mm-hmm. you know, than Per was already related. I can't remember if it's that Camille or a later Camille who has the antenna implanted on Per chin, but so the Camilles continue to work with and steward the monarchs and continue to live in the communities of compost and then over time i'm not sure what's happening on the outside and that's something we want to talk about but for whatever reason there start to be less migrations to and from communities of compost based on extreme need and fleeing violence and more visitation and movement just around wanting to see how different communities do things and wanting to just share adventure and pleasure. And there's some sort of shift that happens at some point. I can't remember it's during Camille 3 or Camille 4's life, but you can see a move. There seems to be some stability coming in globally that is creating a situation in which there is less conflict and violence. Yeah, yeah. There's like a un, there's an unpainted backdrop to the Camille stories. The backdrop is the global ecological and political situation that's never really described. The contours of its changing never, is never really described except in these oblique references. Like there came to be a time when there was less war and genocide and there'd been more recuperation and more flourishing. Yeah. And you get zero information. We kind of beg to know. (laughs) Yeah. Like we're like, wait, what's happening? Like what's happening in the, in this part of the story that's not being told. And we don't get to know that part, that that part's not told. Yeah. Um, It's easy to speculate that something serious happened to maybe take some of the human pressure off (laughs) the world, but it's hard to say what that is at that point. Could it actually be just reproductive choice that would, lead to this population there's no indication in the story that there's any kind of die-off or any kind of plague or or any kind of you know worldwide uprising or you know like any of the things that any of the things um that are like sharp cataclysmic Mm -hmm. right or even or even slower and ongoing it's just not part of the story really sure um uh but it is nice to think about like things getting better right uh, yeah and it does seem like things are getting better at as, least in that way yes. yeah i mean there's some there's some hard stuff that we learn later on uh but there is but there is like things getting better in the form of maybe the communities start to feel 
more secure, safer. And yeah, like you're saying, uh, more just kind of intentional traveling, uh, just to meet new people and, and learn new skills and see other places and see how other of the children of compost are making their way in the world. No, but that idea of there being networks of intentional communities that people would just visit each other um, and learn from each other and stay for a while. And that that's a big part of, of keeping people connected. Totally. You know, and learning and sharing skills and sharing ways. So as the Camilles continue by the fifth Camille, um, some sort of bacterial and fungal imbalance happens in the soil. And there is a pretty big disruption. It's hard to imagine it not also affecting humans, but the monarchs... It's actually the fourth Camille. Oh, it's the fourth Camille? Mm -hmm. The monarchs die and are actually go extinct. And so part of what the work of the fourth and fifth Camille is to mourn the monarchs and to keep their memory alive. And it's interesting to think about how Camille is genetically connected to monarchs and has lost her mutualism. They are having a literal living example of what happens to other species and that are mutualistic or who are mutually bonded in the wild. That's what happens to Camille. And the idea I think is that a lot of the symbionts may fa might face this fate where they are alive, but there's mutualism. Their partner is not mm -hmm. like the bee that we talked about in the orchid or the orchid that survived the bee earlier. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's really sad. And uh, Camille has to also go back to Mexico where the people, now that they've lost the monarchs are wondering how they will see their ancestors again. And we have to face what does it mean in times of global collapse, entropic cascades of animal and plant loss, how many lifeways will also be lost and changed by these epic losses, by all this death. And so that is how the Camille stories end. They come through this arc of uh, different ways of living, but because Camille is so tied to this threatened species, then their story has to also follow the story of the monarch. The Camilles, the last Camilles are tasked with becoming speakers for the dead. Mm -hmm. Referencing the Orson Scott Card novel mm -hmm. that Haraway frequently references in here and pulls that concept from which is the end of the Ender's Game trilogy, but yeah, and she doesn't already say that. And so the role of especially Camille Number Five changes uh, to become one who who still who brings the lost partner into presence. Mm -hmm. Who brings the lost partner into presence, and and because it's and it's also it's 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 not just it's not just the monarch butterflies. It says there were thousands of speakers for the dead around the earth by 2300. You know, uh, and so, I mean, if, 
each of those speakers for the dead had been a symbiont with a threatened species mm -hmm. at some point, then that means that, you know, that, and if there were thousands of them by 2300, then, you know, you just get this idea of how much loss there has been mm -hmm. despite this intentional practice mm -hmm. of creating these symbionts for the purpose of protection, mm -hmm. you know. She does write a excellent example of the messy future. Yeah. Because there is not going to be a way to stop the extinction crisis. We can try to slow it down, but there is just going to be a lot of loss, even if we really change our ways really quickly. And seeing how it seems we are not going to change our ways very quickly or there's not going to be the revolution in immediately, fingers crossed, that might happen, mm -hmm. that is going to actually demand a new way of life right now, then there will be cas cascades of extinctions. And so this is a world in which even though people are creating the world they want to live in, these people in the Camille stories have to keep living with the loss of the havoc that's already been wrought. Right. Um, which I think is really important whenever we write the future and think the future right now to acknowledge that that's part of our work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one of the, one of the powerful things in here that I know that you highlighted, Janet, was about the commitment on the part of the communities of compost not to repeat the mistakes of previous revolutionaries and utopians and even dystopians to imagine a future that is like a clean break or that starts from scratch or mm -hmm. starts over in some way, but that the communities of compost are attentive to the reality that you cannot start over, that the future follows the lines of story that are coming from the past and coming through us right now. Yeah, which brings us back to like the whole title of the book, that the task of us moving forward into the future is to stay with the trouble that's already here. Mm -hmm. There's nothing where you can really draw a line and be like, now we're just going to move into a different reality, mm -hmm. start something different. And she illustrates that well with the way that that story goes, where the communities of compost, as well-educated as they are by reading Donna Haraway and all of her influences... Which Haraway doesn't. Uh, she makes sure that we know how well educated they are on all the things that Haraway thinks is important. That they still inherit and have to bear witness to and be co-present with all of just the ongoing unfolding devastation. The yeah. devastation continues the for a long time. The ongoing unfolding devastation. So that's the general arc of the Camille stories, and then we thought we would go into a little bit about them uh, that we thought was interesting or thought-provoking. But one thing I want to say is that the communities of compost prioritize self-determination of gender, and everyone gets to decide who they're going to be. There's more than two options, and they also are open to all kinds of body modification and have no judgment around that. 
So that is built into these systems and these communities from the beginning. Um, that's highlighted partially because I think that Haraway cites the binary, binary gender enforcement as part of the problem and a limitation to people self-actualizing and creating the worlds that are less destructive. So that's tied in to this as well. So I would like to talk a little bit more about the symbiont children, the children of compost. Okay. I feel weird about them. <laughs> not that they are not just human and have other genes, but that they don't get to choose that. And I understand that they are given this important task and that their understanding is going to be much more in-depth because they have the genes from birth or before. But I feel weird about the fact that they don't get to decide that. And, you know, I guess I also, I just taught a class at our herb school about gender dynamics and just all of the different ways children are born. And finally, there is starting to be a pushback against the non-consensual surgical changing of intersex children. Yeah. Um because a lot of people have issues later on when that's happened to them at birth and they didn't get to decide. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of like, what's the difference? I mean, like if you, without choosing yourself, are genetically modified to be a symbiont with another animal, like even a crawdad or something, is that fair? Is that a way to create autonomous, healthy people? And I understand that it's supposed to be undermining our ideas of the individual. And mm -hmm. it also follows in oh, a long tradition... Yeah, it follows in a long tradition of picking out people to have a special role from childbirth. You know, in the Middle Ages, people, there was this oblation system where people would donate or give their children up to monasteries or convents as an offering to God, and children would be raised with no, without any choice of their own as servants to God in these, in these institutions. Like Hildegard of, of Bingen was one of those people. She was an oblate. Yeah. And she spoke really critically of that process and felt like despite her life and that she was a mystic and had this rich literary and artistic life, she thought that that was a bad thing to do to children, although they were probably told they were special. And in many cultures around the world, there are children that are deemed special or chosen early on. And so I suppose these symbionts are examples of that. Although there's a whole, it's like half the people by the end are symbionts, I think. Maybe a third. Okay, yeah, right. Um, right, right, right. Haraway gives a nod to what you're talking about when she talks about symbiont subjectivity. There's a passage on page 149 where she says, From the beginning, the symbiont children developed a complex subjectivity composed of loneliness, intense sociality, intimacy with non-human others, specialness, lack of choice, fullness of meaning, and sureness of future purpose. And it goes on to say, this landscape of converging and diverging feelings tended to grade into arrogance and exceptionalism toward the non-symbiotic children, and even toward their parents and other non-symbiotic adults of New Gali. I like this attention that Haraway gives to the subjectivity of the kids, because it's something that we are all kind of interested in. But also, yeah, I think, you know, that... The combination of stuff is kind of in there mm -hmm. where there's their sense of specialness, but also, yeah, lack of choice yeah. is there's a nod to it. She doesn't say 
you know, she talks about some of the troubles that come up and the, you know, the, the kind of caste system, the hierarchy or whatever. She even talks in one part about arguments about how long visitors could stay at communities, creating conflict, even leading to the dissolution of communities sometimes. Mm-hmm. So she's thinking about what could go wrong, but she doesn't talk about like, um, symbionts like rebelling mm-hmm. against their enforced role mm-hmm. or it's hard to imagine that there would be no rebellion or having right. like resentment about it mm-hmm. you know which you'd think following what you're saying would probably come up yeah right somewhere no matter along how the way. special you are yeah yeah and you know maybe these people have some system developed to decide which children are going to be which form of symbiont and i mean in older systems you would have someone with a sort of shamanic role or an astrologer or something like decide who were going to be the special children and why you know but like here there's not a lot of children born and i don't know i'm just curious about without some sort of intact mythos around reincarnation or the auspicious birth at a certain time or any of those things like how do they determine who is going to be in what symbiont lineage, and mm-hmm. how do they know that person is actually going to want to be a monarch or a salamander, you know? Right, so, yeah. So, I don't know. I just feel weird about that part, which... So, if you were at the early meetings of one of these foundational <laughs> communities of compost, you would be, like, raising your hand and yeah. objecting, possibly, to this practice. I would definitely be doing of... that, and I... Because it feels kind of forced. Like, yeah. I understand that they want people to care about more than human can. Yeah. I don't think you have to genetically modify people to do that. I know this is a way for her to get her sci-fi tech on, which she's into. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. (laughs) But I also just think it doesn't have to happen that way, and it brings up a lot of weird stuff for me. And maybe I'm just more suspicious of that kind of bioengineering in general, you know? Right. Um, So I've got that problem here. Although I do appreciate, uh, Dave and I were talking about this earlier, but that, like, if I think about it, not literally, but what it's trying to do, I'm like, yes, that's a great goal. Let's be more entrenched with our other animal kin and care for them and steward them and make it our life's work to do so. I would just like us to get to choose, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that what we know from organized religion is generally that the bonds and work of people who at some point get to reaffirm that choice are stronger. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. so that's something that I think about. And then my other thing kind of connects to it, which is that I feel like the examples of the communities of compost are very much a, an example of an attempt to create a mythic life way that binds humans to the rest of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important work, but I'm wondering, can you just create a mythos from scratch and make it a life way? You know, it feels to me like they are trying to call on uh, animal clan traditions on Turtle Island or songline traditions in Australia. And if they are, can you just invent a new mythos and have it work out? Does it have the weight and the ability to tie everyone together that actual organic story does? And it maybe it's still organic. I don't know. I'm just having trouble with the creation right. of it. And I feel like the genetic modification is a way of enforcing it. 
mm-hmm. and that feels weird too. Okay. I don't yeah. know what you think about any of that. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I think that there's room in the story. There's there's room in the story f- to imagine how it could be more organic. Right. Um, because there's people who are like refugees, uh, who who are coming together from all kinds of backgrounds, mm-hmm. who have things to contribute. You know, people are pulling from different cultures, right. it sounds like, that they might have in their backgrounds to inform these things. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's uh, necessarily, like, just out of nothing. Mm-hmm. But even if it was out of nothing, can you create a mythos? Maybe you can. Yeah. I mean, I of know. course, at some point, some would argue every mythos was yeah created. However... I mean, it's what created, most... it's born of actual relationships with the actual world. Right. So what it's I was not gonna... just created out of a mind or something. Right. But it yeah. is, it emerges. Right. And in people whose lineages go back far enough, there's not a before the story. Yeah. They just right. have the story. And so what's, what these folks are doing is writing the story and there is a before the story. And so mm-hmm. that's what doesn't feel organic. Even though, I'm sure there's like anthropology and religious studies folks that would just be like, well, they're all created, you know? Yeah. Um, but I right. feel like they emerge, you know, like what you just said, the stories emerge through relationship and maybe that's what they're doing. And I will say that the long view of the communities of compost, I find enticing and hopeful in this way that just as the Camilles are continuing through five generations, the communities of compost have a long view towards we have these goals. This is how we're going to do things. But other than that, we're just experimenting and we're going to see what happens. Yeah. And there's this feeling of experimentation that seems helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, those are the sure. main, main thoughts on that. I know you have more around some of the back, the context and also what are the, what are the goals? What are the outward reaching goals of the communities? Uh, I mean, I- I really like this. I think that it's, I love that we get a story of like going forward from the present with all of these ideas from the book, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't really want to pick it apart too much because I also just want to let it be like a sketch, mm-hmm. you know, a sketch of something. And Haraway even acknowledges, uh, she says this on 136. Every Camille story that I write will make terrible political and ecological mistakes. Mm-hmm. And every story asks readers to practice generous suspicion by joining in the fray of inventing a bumptious crop of children of compost. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Um, and, you know, she's, she's like, I'm not going to get this right. Mm-hmm. You know, and also join me. Let's write these stories, mm-hmm. you know, together. So I get all that and I like it. And, I mean, I, I do have a little bit of a bone to pick. This is going back to our conversation about the population in one of the earlier chapters. And, like, Haraway, I feel like Haraway contradicts herself a little bit in here by the way that she presents the new sense of kinship that's not reproductive mm-hmm. and the population stuff in that, you know, she argues strongly that population has to go down. And she says, this is a quote, but kin-making and rebalancing human numbers had to happen. She's telling the story of the communities of compost. So she's like, 
their kin-making and their rebalancing human numbers had to happen in risky embodied connections to places, corridors, histories, and ongoing decolonial and postcolonial struggles, and not in the abstract, and not by external fiat. So she's saying, she's saying that this idea about there needing to be fewer people can, can only be seen in the local situation. You can't talk about population numbers outside of the context of all of these very micro-specific places that are storied and have all of these considerations attending to them. You mm-hmm. know, this valley, this place, these people, these folks who have, who have experienced genocide and maybe their population is rebounding, you know, um, all this stuff. So she acknowledges that in on one page, but then she also uses this abstract metric of global human population to track the progress that the communities of compost Mm. are making as the story unfolds. Mm -hmm. And to me, that just feels like a frank contradiction because it says that it can't be abstract, that you can't think about it in the abstract. But what's more abstract than 10 billion people on the earth? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that's not actually paying attention to all of the embodied connections to places, corridors, histories, and decolonial and postcolonial struggles. You know, that's just a number. Mm-hmm. And that, that number goes down for each, chi- each Camille. Well, after the first is like the story moving towards a happy ending. <laughs> uh, kind of. Because this is something that we haven't talked about yet, but one, the communities of compost don't only exercise their population reduction imperative by having their own peculiar reproductive strategy which de-emphasizes biological Mm -hmm. reproduction uh but they also are like activists outside of their own communities for population reduction Mm -hmm. there's even this part where she talks about how the popular this is in camille number three um she talks about how the population had been going down and it says the wealthiest and highest consuming human populations reduced new births the most with the support of the communities of compost. <laughs> um, yeah, what's that support look like? <laughs> yeah. So, so in this one, it's not even the entire sentence, but in this one half of a sentence, she, she just quickly evokes this idea that the communities of compost support rich people in reducing their birth rate wealthy and high-consuming human populations. And there's just a lot of untold story right there, too. Like, how how do they support rich people, who presumably are also powerful for being rich, in, like, not reproducing? They they give them an offer they can't refuse. Yeah. Yeah, they give them an (laughs) offer they can't refuse. (laughs) But so, so it's part of the activism and the goal of these communities, you know, to reduce human population. And... And, um, I guess was my point there. And so that's a bone I have to pick is that she uses an abstract metric against her own advice. It also, you just reminded me of the fact that like, I got, I don't know how it is by the end. Um, but there's still rich people. There's still power and there's still hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And all of this is happening within that. And maybe this is for the wrap up shows 
that we do, but yeah. um yeah, why is it just impossible to imagine the world changing in a way that might actually significantly affect the accumulation of wealth? And maybe it does. Right. But that's also just kind of not told. I mean, yeah, it does say it does say all the way in Camille three, who lives in the twenty two hundreds, that we're still talking about the wealthy people. Yeah. You know, so right. It's not like it's not like these communities formed and we reduced the population and we instituted socialism worldwide. Like that's not part of the story. Mm-hmm. Right. It's um it's she's focusing on these other changes. What I would like to see, I mean, I kept thinking when I was reading this about, about her call for us and whoever else is intrigued by this fabulation, this speculation to write more stories on the theme, mm-hmm. you know? And I kept thinking about what it would be like if the Camille stories were hybridized by other, uh, you know, quasi-utopian proposals or calls to action. Like I was thinking specifically about the recent call put forward in the book Inhabit, mm-hmm. uh, Instructions for Autonomy, which is something that if you all haven't read, you can look up inhabit.global and see it on their website. Uh, but it's also a little book that you can purchase or maybe come across. And uh, I'm not going to talk about what that's all about, but it's another forward-looking idea about how people can come together in hubs, in communities, and learn skills and learn to sort of reconnect uh, and it has a more, it, it has a more of like a outward looking focus, which is like, how, how can these hubs link up in the world and, and create a kind of counter power and can build power and autonomy and resilience in a way that, that can be a transformative force mm-hmm. in the world, you know? So it has a little bit of a different slant to it, but what Haraway is doing here includes a lot of what, you know, inhabit leaves out. So I would like to see like, that hybridization, you know, mm-hmm. come forward. And there, like, there's all these other kinds of workings that can be done around, you know, some of what's going on, not just with the Camille story specifically, but what's going on with this book, mm-hmm. uh, staying with the trouble. So yeah, we can, maybe we can table the rest of those conversations for now. Mm-hmm. And we will come back next time with, uh, some wrap up thoughts, which, We've already started some of them now. Also, um, as we're wrapping up here, we've finished the book. Are there things that you guys would like to hear us talk about that you're thinking about that you would like to be considered here as we do our final episodes on this book? I don't know if it's going to be one or two episodes, but mm-hmm. um, you can email us at thebookonfirepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, so make sure it's the book on fire podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. We've heard from a lot of folks already. And, um, yeah, just trying to like figure out what's the wrap up. What do we want to talk about? The overarching themes, but also what are the challenges and ways forward and how to we, how do we actually make the book on fire in the world and actually take what we're talking about and act on it? Because that's part of the why we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. How do we light it up?